Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm Hannah Rassanen. And we are recording in Hannah's living room in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks! Yes. How's everybody doing? Yeah. Yeah. Doing good? Yeah. I'm a year older. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Happy late birthday. Thank you. Yeah. It was on Sunday. And I had cheesesteaks. Oh. It was great. Oh, they were so good. If... You from live where? in from Yinzer's amazing cheesesteaks. It's um uptown on Della Chase. Oh my god. And it was Yenzer's one of the best experiences of my life. It's like the sensations that this cheesesteak gave me have been blocked out of my memory because they were so overwhelming. It was just so delicious. <laughs> oh my god. So yeah, if you live in New Orleans, please uh, go to this place. I've never heard of it. Okay, you have it's to talk great. about the cheese whiz because I was, oh, I was yeah. asking you if they <laughs> oh, did the, the cheese, cheese whiz yes. on the cheese. They steak. do have t- the cheese whiz. They say that it's homemade cheese whiz. So. I don't know what I don't, that means. Right, I don't know <laughs> what that means. That sounds I don't like know fake. Right, <laughs> I know. Which is like, and cheese whiz is fake cheese. So what is? Homemade cheese. I, I wonder understand. if they do it with real cheese, but I'm like, oh, we're elevating it by right. using real cheese to no, you imitate. Can't do that. No, but cheese. it was yeah. definitely <laughs> a cheese sauce. It okay. was because they they also ha- they also have homemade pretzels that were so good. They have a little oh thing God. of cheese whiz that you can. Is this a new place? I don't think so. I. I think I heard of them like like a couple of months ago. They might they might be newish. New-ish. It's so good. It's uh yeah. So it's okay. great. Um, good. Yeah, that's that's my birthday. Do you have any uh, time to squeeze in any movies between your bites of cheesesteak? Um, no. I, <laughs> I so, so I I might have seen movies in the last. We uh, James and I also went to Las Vegas, so I feel like just multiple parts of my brain have um, gone missing. But I did see Dune. I really liked the David Lynch Dune. I have tried to read Dune. And I have not been successful. There's just something like I love the Dune world, but there's something about the book that I can't. It's so dryly uh, academic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like Tolkien's style of writing or like the things that he's interested in laying out. Yeah. Like the politics and the geography and all that stuff. I'm like, God, I could not get less. <laughs> you have to be deep into <laughs> yeah. it. Because like I remember I'm like, wow, The Hobbit's really cool. The cartoons like before the movie came out, and I'm like, I'm gonna try and read the book. Yeah, and then I'm like, what the? Yeah, f- why am I reading the history right. of a battle that never actually happened? Like, <laughs> right, I don't actually care about that. Yeah, right. Yeah, like I love Dune. When somebody else who loves Dune is telling me about Dune, mm-hmm. then I'm like, this is so cool. I also d- in the book, I d- I didn't love like you can hear everybody's thoughts, kind of or everybody, and so Paul is like this messiah character, obviously, and everybody is just constantly thinking about how incredible Paul is, and like ah, he's his powers are far beyond what, and it's just kind of annoying. But for some reason, it's not annoying in the movies. Anyway, I like the David Lynch Dune. James and I saw this Dune in IMAX, and it was, uh, I really liked it. I thought it was great. Cool. It, it was huge. It is a huge movie. <laughs> it has Timothy Chalamet and Oscar Isaac and Rebecca Ferguson, and they're all just like very hot cool people the costume design is amazing yeah um stellan skarsgård plays like the big lumpy man and he's horrifying but not as horrifying as the um like the david lynch guy had like boils all over and stellan is like a big palpatine who like floats around 
Yeah, the Sandworms, huge, huge movie. I thought it was great. I have a thing with the David Lynch movie where like every few years I trick myself into thinking I'm going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> <And> I go <laughs> back don't. and like, maybe I didn't give that enough chance. Yeah. And then like I kind of fall asleep halfway into it. Really? I need I need to like actually sit down at like 10 a.m. with like a cup of coffee and watch David Lynch's <laughs> Dune. Not a night movie. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I liked the new one okay. I thought it was like very pretty. Yeah, uh, it was The beautiful. costumes and like sets and everything were you know, neat. Yeah. I didn't really understand what the point of it was because it is like half of a story. Right. And like it never gets to anything. Right. That would point to like why Denis Villeneuve wanted to make this movie. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't understand what he was doing other than illustrating the book in his own visual style. And I guess that's enough for this kind of like blockbuster sci-fi filmmaking. But Boomer reviewed it, right? And I told him when I watched it, like, okay, I'm going to watch this movie. I don't have anything to say about it. So if you want to review <laughs> it, review it. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, but I have heard that anyone who saw it in the theater had a much like stronger yeah. experience than I did watching it on my couch. Yeah. So I mean, it's missing. especially seeing it in IMAX, just those like huge kind of cavernous rooms and the like the yeah. desert expanse. It's it's very impressive. I can see that being like really hot IMAX landscape. Like yeah. anything desert. <laughs> if yeah. you go in the 4D experience, they have like a blow dryer that like dries you out <laughs> yeah. on the planet. <laughs> you have like to drink sand. your own filtered pee. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you see this, Brittany? Or are you just like vaguely aware of it? Oh, um, I have not seen it. For some reason, I was like, oh, did you have that experience? Did you drink Brittany? your own piss, Brittany? <laughs> did you drink your piss and <laughs> right. like blow dry it yourself? Yeah. Um. <laughs> I guess I could have replicated that at home. <laughs> I know. The give DIY me yeah. version. Give for, me ideas for free. <laughs> um, I have not watched it. I've had it queued up. It's the same thing because I've I remember seeing like the old the old Dune, which was fine. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, God, it's gonna be a long fucking movie. Yeah, with a is. lot of you know long pauses and mm, so many long pauses. Right. So I'm like, I have that's a movie that like in order for me to fully grasp it and enjoy it, I have to be. In the appropriate mindset. It's not just like, a, oh, I really feel like watching a movie today. Right. And then turn it on. Like, there's no way. Yeah. Um, But I do want to see it. Mm-hmm. I'm just waiting for that moment. <laughs> when you're I don't ready. know what's, I don't know when it'll be or what will yeah. cause it. I also, I mean, this is a problem that I have with Dune, the book. But I just really hate, like, the white messiah trope. And this is, Dune is totally that, you know, they, like, go to this. Um, planet that is like ostensibly the Middle East, mm-hmm. and then um, like Paul becomes one with the locals of the planet, and he like like pushes them to overthrow, or I don't know, he becomes like the prince of the planet. Basically, is my yeah. Remembrance. But that's like the f- that's this first half of the book. The second half like moves beyond that and gets critical of that. Does it? Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't remember that. Right? That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't understand why would you make this in a movie form if you don't feel like you could tell a complete story in a movie? Like, it it feels like an expensive TV show where you have to wait for the second episode. Yeah, for like many years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. I was like frustrated by the fact that it's like half of a story. Yeah. I'm like waiting for it to like have something to say or like a reason to exist. Yeah. Other than just being very pretty. Maybe it would have been better because I think like the David Lynch movie is a little too short. Like it, you know, it has to go through. Right. It has to go through all of this content in, you know, a feature length amount of time. Um, And then with this, it's like it 
stops in kind of an unsatisfying place. And then, you know, they didn't even know if they were going to make a second movie. They were, like, waiting to see how successful it was. Um, yeah, so then we got to wait two years. <laughs> but I'm going to watch it, so yeah. he got me. I'll see it, too. Yeah. I'll have a better, more, like, fully formed opinion than I, <laughs> I feel like I remember some of, like, those, like, sci-fi Dune movies more than, like... The Dune movie. Oh, uh, the miniseries? Yeah, the yeah. miniseries. Yeah, with uh, James McAvoy. a better McAvoy. format for this yeah. story, I think. Yeah. Especially if you want to include every single character. Like, it's okay to condense a novel and lose some stuff. But, like, yeah. he seemed very intent on, like, including everything. So. Right. Yeah. Of course, it's going to be, like, eight hours long. <laughs> right. Um. So then there's another movie that I have not seen. I want to see it Um. called Spencer. Mm. It's the Kristen Stewart Princess Diana mm. biopic. And the... So I, I I love Kristen Stewart, but the reason I want to see this is because there was this quote in a Roger it, the Roger Ebert web, website review, and they um they say that Kristen Stewart is brooding sensationally under various hats, which is like <laughs> ooh exactly what I want. Um, anyway, Brittany, what yeah. have you been watching? Um, so unfortunately, I've not since Halloween has passed. I feel like my movie extreme movie watching has died down a little bit also because my real housewives series have been ramping up <gasps> mm. so um on real housewives of salt lake city um jen shaw has um just been taken away by the feds because um she has been running like um a big telemarketing mm-hmm. scheme and she got arrested oh my on the show on the show like on yes. camera amazing yeah right in front of beauty lab and laser Uh-oh. um where they all met up to go on this trip it's <laughs> so i will say like it is other than like a woman on this show spending 80% of the show in her closet of luxury items who also runs a church that's a cult and married her grandfather <laughs> this is another hot thing in the real Housewives of Salt Lake City. So jump on it. <laughs> okay. Like it's a wild ride. So other than just like binge watching like trash reality TV and I'm rewatching Kath and Kim. Um it's nice, it's unusual, it's different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a big hunk of spunk. <laughs> Chalk. <laughs> oh, it's so hard to like sell that to people. I was like talking about it and they're like wait what is it about and i'm like it's these two women but they're like the same age they play mother and daughter and they smoke a bunch and they say (laughs) stuff like you know like you said brian like hey you big hunk of spunk or what's the (laughs) other one um look at my look at my look at my and they're like oh and i'm like it's it's funny (laughs) it's one of those sitcoms that's just about truly awful people Mm. it's so good i um i'm watching right now like my reality tv like binging is the international editions of rupaul's drag race so like i've watched uh drag race espana i've watched drag race uk uh, watched drag race holland wonderful. drag race australia Ooh. oh my god you're like, unstoppable yeah it's well it's like five dollars a month for the app and it's just like an endless stream of content that i've not paid for for the past two years so i've like i got a lot of catching up to do um, but on two different editions of that show, I've seen Kath and Kim looks in the past two weeks uh, on the Down Under version and on the UK version. Someone both did a Kath look. Were they all Kath? Yeah. yeah both Kath, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, Kim Wig would just be kind of sad. No one likes Kim, but that's what makes Kim Kim. I think Kim right now would actually be a big hit with the Zoomers because she dresses in that early 2000s like Paris Hilton fashion. And that's Which very is coming in. back. Yeah. Also, Paris Hilton got married. 
It's oh. like the royal wedding. I'm not even joking. <laughs> wow. And also there's some issues with um, Bravo not wanting to pay Kathy Hilton enough money. So she comes back for the next season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. But she pretty much carries a show on her back and she's just a friend of. She's not even a main character. Anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> this could turn to a Real Housewives podcast real fast. So I don't reel myself in. But I watched a really, really shitty movie. Mm. And I should have known because it is a Christmas movie that came out on Netflix. And it was number one on like the top 10 things people are watching. So I'm like, why not, Brittany? Feed into it. Watch mm. it. Join the culture. And it was horrible. But the guy in it is really cute. So I watched it. It's called Love Hard. And oh, I've seen that yeah, little square on Netflix. With like Jimmy Yang is in it. And I mm-hmm. think he's so cute. So that's why I watched it. But um, it's such like a run of the mill. Like, oh, this like really hot woman has to like fake being the girlfriend for this guy that people don't think is super hot. And then they fall oh, in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird secondhand embarrassment stuff but like i did not turn away from it um (laughs) so basically this woman she is like a a writer for like a magazine or a blog or something like that and she's like having issues in the dating world you know all her tinder tinder dates are are shit and blah 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 but um she like clicks with this guy when she expands like her because i think on tinder you could be like I want to look at people everywhere instead of just like 10 miles from me. So she does that. And then she like finds this guy. She's like, oh, he looks smoking on his like pictures. And they start talking and they have this connection. And she's like, I'm going to be spontaneous and I'm going to go to his house. Like I'm going to fly over there to like the other side of the country and like meet him and surprise him for Mm -hmm. Christmas. And she shows up and it's at his parents' house, and he lives in the basement, and it's not the same guy. She was catfished. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. So, catfished by, like, Jimmy Yang. Catfished by a real hottie? Yeah, I think he <laughs> I think he looked better than the guy in, that was he was cat, using to catfish. So, then, it's just, like, stupid shit happens. Like, she does, like, an embarrassing karaoke thing, and she's allergic to kiwis, so her face is inflamed while she's trying to, like, seduce somebody. And then it's like, you know, I'll I'll do this for you if you pretend to be my girlfriend. And, mm-hmm. you know, oh, let's pretend to get married. And then um, the cheese ball ending. It was just bad. Bad acting, like overuse plot. But it, if you're into, if you're like a Hallmark Christmas movie um, person, then you would enjoy this. I'm not. I remember, um, like, when you hover over a Netflix movie, you get, like, a little scene from, like, as a preview. Yeah. And I, I remember hovering over this movie, and the scene that comes up is, like, he's introducing her to his parents and his brother, his hot brother who has, like, a hot girlfriend. Yes. And the brother is like, oh, wait, you're really his girlfriend? Like, my ugly brother? You know, I don't know. I'm just, like, 
very over the like you're this guy's so ugly and you're <laughs> hot wow that's crazy it, yeah I don't, you know you you're know? right it feels it felt like a step back in time because there like those movies were everywhere yeah in the early 2000s like shallow hal and like mm-hmm. like sorority girls and just movies where it's like oh man that person's really ugly yeah (laughs) like weird that you fell in love with him i don't it just doesn't sit well with people as much as it used to so it felt yeah maybe that's kind of accurate too like it just felt like a pushback in time and for the wrong reason but yeah brandon have you been watching anything more tasteful (laughs) no (laughs) i think about it i uh i got um from the library finally old from them night shaman oh my god I went to the beach that makes you old. Mm. Uh, this movie came out in the summer, and I've yeah. just been kind of catching up with stuff that I wasn't going mm-hmm. to the theater for. I've since got my booster shot, so I'm feeling a little more confident nice. and getting oh, out yeah. there a little Ooh, more. Got to get that booster. I th- understand why this movie has an enthusiastic fan base. <laughs> I like M. Night Shyamalan a lot. I learned to love him from doing this show. Uh, we-, we watched... All of his classic films all of them. Um, mm-hmm. pretty recently, a couple years ago. Yeah. And I especially like this like recent run since The Visit. He's done these like kind of low budget, high concept novelty horrors, and they've yeah. all been very amusing. This is another one of them. Mm-hmm. Like you've heard from the memes what this movie's about. <laughs> the beach makes you real old real right. fast. <laughs> but I was watching this and I didn't love it as much as a lot of like it's like bigger defenders do. Yeah. And I think what it is, is just how small it feels. Like, you got that Bunuelian, like, everyone's trapped and can't leave the beach. Right. And it's just, like, maybe 10 people total. Um, they're all, most of them are, like, famous actors, and they're giving, like, very bizarre performances. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, a, like, they're learning to speak English for the first time, <laughs> um, phonetically. <laughs> and I was just thinking the back to, like, The Happening, mm-hmm. um, which I think does a lot of the same things, like... It has the same, like, is this humor intentional or right. not kind of questions as old does. Um, and it also has these, like, harsh intrusions of, like, disgusting bodily horror mm-hmm. um, that you wouldn't normally expect from M. Night Shyamalan. Because usually mm-hmm. he's he calls himself Mr. PG uh, sometimes, <laughs> which is oh. very funny to me. Um, but The Happening does a lot of the same stuff. And I feel like it was just sort of relentlessly made fun of and doesn't have the cult that it deserves. Mm -hmm. I really liked that movie when we watched it for the podcast. And I just think that all these people who loved old and are like championing it as like one of the like genre gems of the year, I would just implore you to go back (laughs) and give The Happening a second shot. Yeah. Now that you have a full scope of like what makes M. Night Shyamalan charming. Yeah. um, I think that movie deserves more attention and it's, fun to watch him do this same weird shit on a bigger budget like watching him play with like real hollywood money yeah. and be just as much of a bizarre freak um, i think is worth going back to see because yeah. i, I kind of missed it watching this Those big open green fields <laughs> yeah. and mark Wahlberg talking to a plant negotiating with a plastic yeah. house plant <laughs> but like that movie's pretty gnarly like there's like, no it is some yeah. suicide gore and um, like a couple yeah. kids get blown apart with a shotgun. Yeah. I, mean, I I went to theaters to see it, and I was like, wow, this is great. And everybody is really <laughs> <Yeah>. pissed. <laughs> I was horrified by that movie. I was so... Because I was, like, kind of young. I don't know. I was probably, like, 11. 
and I thought it was super scary. Right. And, you know, because it's plants, like, how do you escape it? The plants are everywhere. <laughs> you can't. And then the, there's that that woman like takes the knitting needle out of her, Sick. like very 2000s knitting needle bun and like sick stuck. yeah it's uh, totally. so so gnarly yeah I, w- I was like the happening is scary to like everybody thinks the happening is a joke to like the happening is hilarious and, and scary and, and it is scary and there's blood and then <laughs> people okay going out of lawnmower hap- happening and yeah oh yeah it's everything I think old does a lot of the same stuff. I don't know. That's yeah. all I'm saying. It's just I'm like great. a smaller scale. Yeah. Um, and I agree. for some reason has a bigger fandom. And I'm Man. like, y'all missed out on when he was doing yeah. this like more extravagantly. That that bone lady is sick. Yeah. Everything in that in that little scene. Ooh. Um and I really like the love story between the couple. I thought that was very sweet genuinely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of like earnestness in his movies that I always appreciate. Yeah. You know, this one, it's like this parental horror where it's like, mm-hmm. if you don't live in the moment and like, yeah, um, stop looking forward to like what your kids are going to become, you're going to miss out on this like precious right. uh, all, moments. All also, your moments. body will decay <laughs> in the meantime. And it's just like, he's always been that earnest. And I think yeah. that's what confuses people. Like there are stuff, there are things that happen in the happening that are like intentionally funny. Yeah. Like him negotiating with that houseplant is a joke. Right. There's a character who keeps trying to fix the situation of the world falling apart by offering everyone hot dogs. <laughs> yeah. And that's his yeah. one character trait. <laughs> and it's basically like having a rapper named Midsize Sedan uh, right. as like a you know, single <laughs> yeah. joke. Oh, I forgot about Midsize Sedan. Uh, yeah. I, I think he's always been doing this. It's just he right. used to do this on like other people's budgets. Right. Um, and I, I miss that a little bit. Yeah. So worth seeing. I don't know. Okay. I, I feel like we're all in this like down period right now as we're yeah, recording this. Yeah. We're like soon it'll be like list making season where you like try to mm-hmm. catch up Start on a bunch of nuts. stuff. I think you'll enjoy old if you have not seen it. Well, yet, I'm Brady. glad you mentioned the because I'm like, oh, I want to watch it. And I always forget the library has all that crap, too. So mm-hmm. this is how I've been keeping up with movies. I every week. OK, you don't have to do this. But every week <laughs> I go on there and uh, I go on the library's website and I um, have DVDs. Put on hold at the library by my house. So once a week, I just go there and pick up like three or four movies. And it's been the cheapest way to keep up with like new cinema mm. that I've ever experienced in my life. I need to do that. That's yeah. a good idea. Speaking of which, uh, we meant to do this episode a long time ago to talk about Almodovar's mm-hmm. Pain and Glory. Um, but it was like $20 to like oh my God. watch for yes. the longest time unless you had like stars or Showtime or whatever yeah. you know cable channel it was on. And... Still, it was like still five bucks to rent, and I got it for free from the New Orleans Public Library. This oh, week, really? So. <laughs> I just rented it. I rented it. Could have saved yourself four dollars. They had ten I copies know. in the system. But you would have had it. No, ten <laughs> copies. Oh, there are ten copies. Yeah. Okay. I was having a conversation with a friend, and they were like, "I have something to confess." And I was like, "What?" And they're like, "I have all these DVDs, but I still rent it anyway because I don't want to dig through my DVDs." Wow. <laughs> and I'm like. Thank you for this confession. Wow. <laughs> and literally someone else made a comment like about two weeks after that, like not in the same like I have someone to confess fashion. They were just kind of like, yeah, it's just hard. I don't know. It's just annoying to dig through all that shit. We just whatever pay three bucks. And then what? Get it. And I'm like, whoa, am I missing? <laughs> so I just wanted to. to I will wow. say. <laughs> if wow. I if I decide to watch a DVD I own, the first thing I do is I go on 
the apps to see if it's already streaming uh-huh. but not because i can't access my library that's insane <laughs> but because um often it's in hd on the uh streaming apps and like yeah. my dvd is not gonna look as good yeah but i will save the four dollars and watch right. the standard Who definition version high rollers flouncing <laughs> right. around i didn't feel as guilty spending the three bucks to um get this one. Oh yeah it's worth it for certain <laughs> I was yeah. Like, yeah yeah it's fine fine yeah and um that was a launching pad for us to talk about other movies where directors um, fictionalize memoirs mm-hmm. of their own lives. Yes. So we're talking about a lot of autobiographies today. Yes. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Of course. I mean, it's, obviously, it is based in my own life and in my own experience. Uh, but uh, let's say that, that uh, 40% is really based in my life and the 60% uh, is fiction but mixed, very mixed together. Uh, but, you, you know, in any way, of course, I, I'm reflected in, 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 in all the movie, in the whole movie, but you cannot take it literally. So this episode is about fictionalized, semi-autobiographical um, movies about the directors who created the films. So... The impetus for this episode was that we wanted to watch Pain and Glory, which is a 2019 movie by Pedro Almodovar, who I love. I um, wanted to see this movie when it came out. I did not see it until this weekend. So (laughs) it is uh, starring Antonio Banderas, who plays like kind of a Pedro Almodovar surrogate. He is a... director who has a lot of like um, nerve problems a lot of physical and mental pain Um, he has recently had back surgery Uh, Pedro Almodovar um, actually had back surgery as well in 2016 so like probably around the time he was developing this yeah Yeah. right fresh and uh, his mother passed away four years ago so he's dealing with this like very intense physical pain and this emotional pain of losing his mother so the movie kind of follows two threads. One is um, the re-release of his uh, film Flavor and his reconnection with a couple of different people that he has very strong memories with. So first of all, uh, the actor that starred in um, Flavor, who he had a very contentious relationship with. Quick question about yeah. that. Do you think that's Antonio Banderas? Because they haven't worked. They didn't work together from like the eighties until mm. the twenty tens. Oh my god! I don't know. That's a good question. I not, know that they- not that I'm saying Antonio Banderas smokes heroin all right. day, but uh, <laughs> it seems yeah. like there's a little bit of a what, thing in there. Yeah. yeah, which is the crux of the um, the, the conflict between <laughs> <laughs> Antonio Banderas and this um, actor. Salvador reconnects with this. Uh, actor he has been writing in his spare time and he's like kind of writing to forget about his past this actor mm-hmm. finds this piece on his computer called addiction which is about salvador's romantic relationship with this man in like 80s madrid and this man's addiction to heroin and how that uh ripped up both of their lives and the actor is like i need to play this um i need to like bring this to life it's just calling to me salvador also gets addicted to heroin or he he starts smoking heroin with this actor um mostly to relieve his like back yeah his intense pain like the his he's on opioids and they're not working for him anymore so he he kind of like agrees to sell the rights to this 
work of art to the actor, uh, like kind of in exchange for a heroin hookup, but also he just like doesn't he doesn't care anymore, but he doesn't want to be associated with it. Um, the actor performs this. The man that the story is based on comes to the performance in like a coincidence, a very like Almodovarian coincidence. Uh, so then Salvador reconnects with this man that he's had this romantic relationship with. And he kind of like gets his life right. And then he memories of his first like sexual awakening kind of come to him through this uh, drawing that this young man made of him when he was living in like this cave village in Spain. And I, I mean, basically, the story in the present day is of his like reckoning with his pain and um, his processing and, and moving on. And then in parallel, you see scenes of him growing up um, with his mother, who's played by Penelope Cruz, who's just absolutely perfect. Um, him growing up in this like very beautiful um, underground uh, system. Of, it's like a like almost like an catacombs. underground village. Yeah, yeah. it's so yeah. cool, so beautiful. Yeah, um, him meeting this laborer that um, he he teaches the laborer how to read and write, and the uh, laborer comes in like renovates their house, and then Salvador like goes to seminary, which uh, kind of links to like bad, bad education. education. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So like these two stories, like his present day kind of malaise is interlocked with this nostalgia, often through like these heroin induced dreams. Um, So this movie reminded me a lot of Bad Education and all about my mother. Just these like, I just love that Almodovar consistently makes these stories that don't demonize like drug use they don't really demonize any particular character like i kept expecting this actor to be this super negative force in his life like ah, oh, he's gonna like lead to salvador's like he's gonna like they're gonna hit rock bottom together or something it's gonna be this like drug story with redemption and that like kind of i think it's easy to say that anyone who has like a conflict with heroin in this film like is able to back off and not die from it. Right. Every single character who uses heroin um, is able to live a life after heroin. Right. Yeah. And even the you know the actor uses it consistently, mm-hmm. and then um, they're uh, hanging out together, and Salvador says, "Oh, don't you want some?" And the actor says, "No, no, no. I'm trying to you know I'm I'm reducing my dose. I want to make sure that I can like you know do this uh, art perform. to the best yeah, of my he's ability. Like, I need to be like clean. Yeah. For this. Like oh right. So it's <laughs> that's not an easy fix. you know I mean you know heroin can really like destroy your life but i feel like this is a pretty straightforward reasonable depiction of it and probably how it's used by a lot of artists so this film also reminded me of the like like super zany almodovar movies that were steeped in madrid in the 80s but it's kind of like like those characters have grown up and are reminiscing a little bit about that time in their lives. I wish it reminded me of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. It does not have the like the same energy, but it, it really feels like like an elderly right, Almodovar yeah. kind of like reflecting on that, mostly just through monologues, not really through like any on-screen depiction. Yeah. But I don't know. I just I really liked this movie, and it reminded me of like what I like about all of Almodovar's movies. Mm-hmm. I so apparently like 
he has kind of gone on the record to say this isn't, it's not strictly autobiographical. People kept coming up to him and thinking he was like super sick and debilitated. Yeah, because there were like rumors this was going to be his final movie yeah. and he's done two movies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Human Voice and Parallel Mothers both came out this year. Right. Uh, so he's still working. Yeah. He's in his 70s and still cranking him out. Yeah. He's like, people keep thinking I'm, I'm done and I'm not done. He invites that, though, because Antonio Banderas... He looks exactly like Yeah, spikes his hair. <laughs> well, very self-flattering to cast from the sexiest man ever right. as yourself. Uh. But, you know, he spikes his hair in the way Almodovar does, and he wears all of Almodovar's actual clothing. Oh, really? And that apartment that he lives in is furnished with all of Almodovar's actual apartment decorations. Oh, my God. Yeah. Love that okay. apartment. So, yeah, it's got yeah. great taste. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it. it is like autobiographical and then everybody was like this is exactly what happened to you and he was like okay well but i'm kind of weaved into all of my movies also i do love that we started with this too because he uses a word um in a conversation with his elderly the elderly version of his mother that's mm-hmm. not penelope cruz yeah she calls his work autofiction in this like mm, derivative yeah way. And he's like, you don't know what that word means. He's like, well, I heard you I heard you use it in a magazine. <laughs> she like weaponizes it against him. And I think that is like the crux of all these movies. It's autofiction. Like, yeah. There's like this very yeah. strong autobiographical element and then um, fictional embellishments to make it worthwhile as a movie because most yeah. of our daily lives are right. pretty fucking boring and mm. wouldn't be worth watching. Uh, I would be so embarrassed by my own life God. if it was <laughs> so <laughs> just boring. <laughs> but I just like... I just thought this was a really sweet movie. Mm-hmm. I think that Almodovar has such a compassionate attitude towards people and especially towards women. There is this scene and it's it's like the first scene of the movie almost um, where he's like remembering a time when he's on the like the Spanish river with his mother and these three women who are all washing clothes together and they're singing and like hanging the sheets over these huge, like beautiful bushes. And it's just like, I don't know, it's just so summery and lovely. And I feel like I've seen that kind of tenderness in all of his films. I kind of missed women in this movie. Like, yeah. He has a like personal assistant that takes care of him. And he obviously loves his mother. But you're watching that first scene where he's like immersed in the lives of women as a child. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, this feels true yeah. to anecdotes from his life that he's like, auto-fictionalized before. Yeah. But, like, most of the movie's about men. It is about men, it's yeah. It's that, that sort of, like, talk to her bad education, like, late period Almodovar when he started, like, mm-hmm. moving away from his stories about complex women and started doing this, like, reflection of masculinity. Yeah. Instead, and his own masculinity and what right. that means and all that stuff. Which I'm not saying that's not a worthwhile subject, but I but th- that first scene made me miss, like, yeah. immersed in that, like, femininity uh, that he's so good at. I But I, I like his exploration of male relationships, too. And that also felt very honest and authentic and true mm-hmm. and, and, like, very beautiful. So, yeah, I, I just, uh, I love him. I like this movie. We talked about, me and Hannah talked about, like, four of his movies, yeah. maybe five, uh, back when we did Women on a Verge as a movie of the month. And that was like a huge crash course in Almodovar yeah. to me. And I said at the time that I'm glad we did not start with Pain and Glory because right. I felt like I hadn't done my homework yet. And now I have. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if Brittany's ever seen any of his movies before. Um, I've just seen Women on the Verge. And I did get one at the Criterion Collection sale a while back. I can't remember the name of it offhand. Something about his mother. All about my mother. All about my mother. Yeah. Classic. That's so good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, so it's on my um, in my to watch pile. 
well, how did this work for you as someone who's not steeped in his life? Because so much of what's happening is mm-hmm. like informed by other movies and like events and things I like that. I guess like I, I didn't really watch it as like a, a peek into a known director's life. I just watched it as a movie. Mm-hmm. And it just felt very like super authentic. So obviously the connection's pretty obvious just from that. It's so weird how this is like, it has such a sad plot and it's a sad movie, but it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Like that's something he does like. You watch like this like movie about like death and heroin addiction so and vibrant. usually sexual assaults and like at the end you're like that was a fun breezy time. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot yeah. of vibrancy. Like mm-hmm. he's just really smart in the way like I don't know, just like the way he, he uses like color and scenery and also like the acting was great. This is probably like the best role I've seen like Antonio Banderas mm. in. That I'm like, oh, he's actually got pretty good chops. Yeah. Um, because the only other thing I could really think of that I loved him in was like Zorro. Um, <laughs> it was great. You know, and he was great in that too. But yeah, like it, it, it was just, it was so authentic. And you could, f- I know it's like pain and glory, but mm-hmm. you could feel so much pain in this movie mm-hmm. where it's like, God, like this guy's life is fucking falling apart. Yeah. He's got a freaking calcified spine. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, doing whatever the hell he can get his hands on to like make it feel better. Still trying to push out his art mm-hmm. and like just dealing with all this shit life's throwing at him. And I'm like, Oh my God, it was just like so overwhelming. And there's, I don't know this movie just does such like a really good job of like you kind of feeling that burden that the, the main character feels yeah um so yeah i am looking forward to knowing more about the <laughs> dovar yeah this is my least favorite movie i've seen from him really? so far like not even a question yeah because it's a perfectly good drama like mm-hmm. i understand that you know especially with antonio banderas like getting accolades for his performance and like yeah. the um sort of self-reflective screenplay you know all of his screenplays have this like russian nesting doll right format where like there's a play within a mm-hmm. movie within like a story within an anecdote within like a memory he does this stuff all the time i just feel like he's done it more vibrantly and energetically before yeah and the movie feels like it's about that like it feels like okay this is autofiction, right so like there is some core of truth to him personally he'll never reveal what that truth is. Right. But if I had to decipher it, like as an audience, just guessing what happened here, like trying to piece this back right. together. He had this back surgery in 2016. He's getting old and he's thinking to himself, um, I'm tired. I'm tired of making movies. Life is hard. My body's in pain. And also I am now low key addicted to opioids. <laughs> like <laughs> right. anyone who's had like major surgery like that. The first thing they're going to, especially if you're rich, they're going to like, just give you medicine to make you feel better. Yeah. I'm going to guess that after the surgery and the recovery period, he was like low key addicted to just the opioids that you get. And after any routine surgery, mm-hmm. I doubt that he was like smoking heroin, but that feels like a exaggeration of what he was going through at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this movie feels like a reflection of just him being kind of like uninspired and out of it mm-hmm. and like struggling to get his mojo back. And if by like him making two much more, from what I can tell from the outside, vibrantly excited movies this year, it feels like he's moved past that period. And I just got the sense watching this, like, has he run out of good anecdotes? Like, is there anything left in his life for him to mine for these Mm -hmm. little Easter egg, uh, these little like 
Russian nesting doll story structures. Like nothing really happens in this movie. He's yeah. kind of like slowly recovering and thinking about how much he loves his mom. Yeah, he kind of like goes into a funk. Yeah. And then he gets out of the funk. Which I think is totally fine, especially mm-hmm. for a filmmaker who's made two dozen movies to like self-mythologize this part of his life. I, it's just not as compelling to me as like obviously the early punk films like Peppy Lucy Bomb right, and totally. like Women on a Verge and the other ones I haven't seen yet. Like I just don't see that much here. And, and I'm watching the reactions to the movie when it came out, like going back and reading them. And it's like the best movie he's made in decades. And like he's like finally back on top and all this yeah. stuff. And I'm like, isn't he more fun when he's misbehaving and messy <laughs> and like maybe a little offensive? Right. Mm-hmm. He's not offensive here. He's like very careful and it's a very like cromulent, like straight across the board, Oscar winning. I don't know if it won any Oscars, but like Oscar contending drama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just not my kind of filmmaking, I guess. Yeah. But I still found it very interesting, especially like piecing apart like what parts of this are true how much of himself is in here versus like, he says he borrows a lot of anecdotes from his friends yeah, and siblings yeah, yeah. and stuff. Right. I was more engaged piecing apart like what he was trying to capture here is like kind of like a diary and a document. Than right. I was like actually engaging with the drama at the center of it. Yeah. I think I do agree that it's my least favorite film, but I still just really, really enjoy all of his movies. And I think I like appreciated like there is even a little bit of like volver in here too like i i appreciated like the calling back to all of these movies that i really love and then also like the addiction story reminded me of like giovanni's room by james baldwin there were just all of these little pieces and i don't know if that i mean that doesn't make it like the best movie he's done in decades but I like him so much that I just liked the movie. I totally agree with that. Like, I think it's more interesting as a piece of a larger puzzle than Mm -hmm. it is as its own thing. Yeah. And like, even thinking about how he recreated his apartment um, in this like fictionalized apartment. And then this year, the human voice uh, with Tilda Swinton, where she Mm -hmm. does this like one woman play. It's like a 40 minute movie. I think Mm -hmm. it might still be on HBO max. I'm not sure. But in that one, it's a very similar apartment. I don't know if it's the same decorations. I have to go back and watch it, but it's like very similarly styled and that's made even more abstract from this like soundstage Hmm. um, thing. And I feel like not only is this part of a bigger puzzle, but he's since taken pieces of this and like spun them out into this other project afterwards. Yeah. I love that he does that. Right. I, I found that very exciting. Yeah. It's like, he's like abstracting his own movies into, and like combining them and breaking them apart into new new pieces but like britney said it still works as like a just normal drama Mm -hmm. like not knowing any of that stuff yeah (laughs) i liked it i don't know any of that stuff you know i'll watch antonio banderas any day i'll watch penelope cruz every day and i liked that there's some funny stuff in there too like the scene where um they're doing a q a over the phone (laughs) while they're both getting fucked up i don't know i thought that was pretty funny they're like yeah we're not coming or it's just like oh like just like yeah like just light stuff sprinkled in at the right moments so you don't get too sad. Yeah. Also, I I, th- I might have mentioned this on the other, on the Almodovar podcast we did before, but like when I was growing up, Penelope Cruz was like the hot Spanish bombshell in all these yes. American movies. And like, I didn't see her in a serious film until I saw Volver. 
I mean, he kind of uses her as this like motherly trope. Like it's a different kind of trope, but she is a great actress. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that he has like had her in so many of his movies. It without if he hadn't, I, d- I don't know that I would have such strong feelings for Penelope Cruz. It does feel like a good marriage of the two muses in his career. Like mm-hmm. Antonio Banderas was in like four of his like very essential yeah. movies when he first like earned international acclaim. Mm-hmm. And then Penelope Cruz recent more recently in yeah. the twenty in the two thousands sort of represented like this like late period turn where you like got even more accolades. Right. So it's kind of cool to see both of them together. Yeah. And I kind of wonder what he's doing with Antonio Banderas a lot more than what he's doing with her here. Yeah. Because like she has done this kind of role before. Yes. Mm-hmm. But like to ask Antonio Banderas to play a version of him and to have this other like bad boy <laughs> rebel actor play opposite him after they had their own fallout. Like, yeah, I have a lot of questions about what they're like. Right. Screen dynamic. What is it might have been yeah. therapy Ooh. for both of them. Yeah. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. What's kayfabe, you know? <laughs> I, I'm also glad we started here um, besides the autofiction definition, which I thought was very helpful. Like, yeah. yeah, it also codifies something that I think all these movies do, which is like all of them are about movies because of course they are. Right. Like, yes. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> these are all directors talking about their own lives. Of course, they're all movie nerds in their yeah. like movies about themselves. Right. You know, in this, he actually plays like a film director and he like goes to all these repertory screenings and like Q&As, which are like something you don't normally see in a film. Yeah. But also a lot of them, almost all of them are about childhoods. Right. Childhood yes. memories. And childhood memories growing up like pretty poor in like European cities. <laughs> yeah. Right. Where, well, we all you know, or a villages. different country. I know. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, three of the four have like very similar kind of. Right. origins and then one is very different yeah that was me <laughs> this might be me i'm um, doing another party girl party foul yeah. where i pick something slightly off topic totally hopefully i won't get roasted it for works. it <laughs> well i also think it's like interesting that the three like male dominated movies are about these like like poor men that are inspired by movies and like rocket up to stardom basically or like to acclaim and then the movie with a female director is like a little oh, different. Well, yeah. <laughs> different like, story, different trajectory. has resources and there are some serious um, hurdles that she has yes. to overcome. It is bizarre to me that the first feature that I've done is so much built around me and my identity and the confluence between my identity and the character's identity, it feels super narcissistic (laughs) and I'm not that much of an egomaniac. I think I'm like exactly in the normal range for a director where you're just kind of vacillating between uh, self-loathing and arrogance all the time, but that's normal for a film director. Uh, I think that what happens in this film is, is not normal. But as a metaphor, it's truthful. And we are joined by a very special guest for this final segment. <laughs> I'm back, baby. Whoa, James is here. Yahoo! Live and in living color. I am so sorry. I am very late. Oh, you're he fine. back from work. And you just had a very long day at work. Yep. You're very tired. You're mentally drained. And now it's time to talk about some really light uh, cinema <laughs> right. that, you know, it's very easy to have like new, fresh opinions on. No mm. one's ever talked about this stuff before. Yeah. 
What movie did you bring to the table today? Well, it, it's one of those, like, you see it on the top 100 of all time, and it's like the start of the French New Wave. It is the first film by Francois Truffaut. Truffaut. Yes. Thank Correct. You. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, y'all. It's been a very long day. My brain is scrambled. Um, anyway, this came out in 1959. 400 Blows. This is one of those films that I just, I know I should have seen. And I don't know why I waited this long to see it. And since we were on the topic of films, kind of autobiographical films about directors, this felt like a good opportunity to watch it. And it's a masterpiece for a reason. Pretty simple story that it's hard not to look back on. And you've seen a million movies that have been about this exact same topic. You have a troubled boy named... Antoine Zonel. Antoine, yeah. yeah and he's, he's made a several movies as um, the actor Jean-Pierre Leo mm-hmm. grew up, uh, returning to this Antoine Zonel character. Yeah, and apparently they look... Very similar. But anyway, so he's not a bad kid. He's just a rascal that gets into mischief and does a lot a lot of things that I did when I was that age, skipping school to go dick off at the park. He's got a best friend who they get in all sorts of trouble doing petty theft here and there. But he's not bad at his core. He's a kid that has no direction. He has parents who don't really care. And he has a school system that is oppressive. Essentially, he's lost. And after committing an escalating series of crimes, he ends up in this reform school for kids, which attempts to punish him and stifle him even further, with him eventually running away to the ocean in this kind of classic final scene of a film. And I think what um, what I really loved about the movie besides just the the cinematography it's gorgeous black and white in paris Mm -hmm. you really get to see paris and how beautiful it is but what i really enjoyed about it was the lack of sentimentality and that is a big part of a film we'll talk about i think for our next film but this one is totally lacking that it's almost like a documentarian take on it and um what I noticed too is like when Antoine is like inside, when he's stuck in school or he's behind a jail cell at the end, it's these like very static shots um, where the camera doesn't really move and he's crammed in there and these adults are kind of huge around him and he, he kind of gets lost. But when he's outside, when he's, running the streets of Paris with his friend, or he's like running on the beach, the camera moves and it has a vibrancy. And uh, to me, like that is the whole really heart of the film is like when you're that age and when you're just like a kid growing up, all these institutions and these things that try to keep you in a box and tell you what to do and how to think. And what you really want to do is just like be on your own and be free and society essentially like tries to stagnate the youth. And so he's just like a rebellious kid that is kind of, you know, has no direction, but he's good. And none of the adults and institutions are there 
to help him. And that to me is like a totally timeless story. And going through that unsentimental eye, I thought it was like really powerful and beautiful to look at. And I really, really liked it. Was this everyone's first time watch? I mean, I've seen this yeah. a few times. This is yeah. my first watch. Okay. It's a very important movie. Like, and that exact, like running around in the streets, like, just playing with the camera, like excitement mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. very much what makes it important. Like, yeah, this is one of the very first examples of the French new wave. Yeah. And what they were rebelling against was that very stately, expensive, extravagant style of like mainstream French filmmaking. We watched that movie children of paradise for this podcast before. Mm-hmm. Remember that with the, like the opera and like the mime and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, this movie and this character have become kind of a mascot for the French New Wave. Like, it was all about rejecting that, like, very stately type of filmmaking. It's supposed to be scrappy right. and dirty and, like, kind of aping um, American crime pictures, like noirs and stuff. Like, high style but low quality control. Like, kind of like <laughs> DIY, like, yeah. grimy filmmaking. And this character... Is and not the character himself, but the actor Jean Pierre Layode, who plays him, became kind of a mascot for that movement. And we've talked about him on this podcast before several times. The four of us talked about the mother and the whore, where he yeah. was in his like shithead philosophy student phase, right? Um, and then James and I talked about the death of Louis the Fourteenth, uh, which is a much more recent film where he's basically on his deathbed, mm-hmm. and the movie is like this like symbolic like the death of like French cinema as it was like, and he's become like kind of a corollary, like like watching that era of filmmaking mm. grow up and eventually die. Yeah. Um, has been tied to this kind of a nothing kid. Like he's so real and authentic that he's basically just like, just a normal guy. <laughs> like so much symbolism has been piled onto him over the years. Um, so I just want to set the table a little bit there. Like we've definitely discussed this character before, but not directly like through these other movies right. because he's like meant so much. Yeah. Um, but it started with this like very like slice of life, just a little boy cutting class to go fuck off at the movies and at the carnival and like um, eventually getting in trouble for it. Also worth noting that this is the most autobiographical film we'll talk about today. Like this is the closest to Truffaut's life. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of his, very public arguments with Godard was that Godard had a much easier, like um, nice rich kid mm. <laughs> lifestyle. And Truffaut like went to like um, the reformatory school for shitheads right. <laughs> because he got caught cutting class and his mother and his like surrogate father basically just uh-huh. didn't want him. Um, and basically when parents don't want their kids, the system doesn't know what to do with the kids and they fall through the cracks and end up in this sort of like makeshift prison. Um, and so it's Group very, homes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a social commentary on like how yeah. like the system doesn't know what to do with these kids either. So yeah, I think it works on like those two levels. It's both very symbolic and it's just a slice of life story about boys on the streets being boys. Yeah. Street boys. Yeah. Beyond the symbolism in this, I was like just so shocked at how young this little boy was where I'm like, I can understand all that crap happening to like a 13 or six to 16 year old, but he looks like he's like six. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's so bizarre. Just like watching this, like, you know, I guess adults like kind of expect adult behavior from a child. Mm -hmm. It was just super weird. Yeah. Like cooking his own dinner on like a gas burner and like, um, the way they're like handling his head and stuff when they're like taking his like 
mugshot, mugshot yes, like at the end mugshot. when he gets arrested yeah uh, it's like very harsh yeah. yeah yeah and i don't know and i know like it's like back in the day you know kids blah 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 like did they just like rough up like itty bitty kids or something like <laughs> i don't know i don't know that much about childhood um in that like you know in the 50s in the 50s yeah yeah but i thought that was pretty bizarre um, especially cause like he just seems like a, like a genuinely like sweet kid that's just like trying to have fun. And I mean, the stuff he was doing was just fun. Yeah. Like, I want to ride the rickety Gravitron at the carnival. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, the rickety get, gra- oh. He gets up sideways. I want to do that every day oh, of my boy. life. Wild. Also, I would like to, um, give a shout out to those cats. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. his friends yeah. were so Meow. bizarre. Meow. His friend's mom is a hoarder of cats. Yeah. So Big every version. <laughs> also, because it's in black and white, you don't notice how many cats right. there are at first. And the longer you, you stare at the keep screen, you keep I, noticing I, I, They keep coming out of corners. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that experience with dogs at our old recording studio at your aunt's house. Yes. Uh, the dogs would just come out of every... <laughs> <laughs> there was, like, one where, like, there, she had, like, six... And like four of them like would rush up to greet you and Brandon. I remember he was like, "Oh shit!" And then I'm like, "Wait, there's more." <laughs> and then like there's like a like a lazy Susan corner cabinet. And it's spun around and one of the dogs. A dog came emerged. <laughs> so James mentioned that this is like a very non sentimental movie, and there you know there are three like European poor boy movies that we're talking about. And I mm-hmm. that also struck me that the um, Pain and Glory and Cinema Paradiso are like very sentimental in the scenes with like where they're children, um, and like very much like ah movies are are escape and it's like the, the super flowery beautiful, um, and this movie was I also felt like it was the one that was the least about movies and movie right. making like he loves going to the theater and they go to the theater but it's more like this is one part of my life that gives me an outlet and there are all of these other like methods that I use to escape but it's more about like the experience of feeling like trapped and misunderstood and mishandled and I, I don't know it just like I appreciated kind of a story about a kid who like doesn't have like this super loving like brick strong mom you know it's just kind of like oh my parents are shitty and they I mean they're kind of doing their best but ultimately like they abandoned me basically but I will say the one scene that we get of them actually being joyful together is when they go to the movies yeah yeah that's Mm -hmm. the one sentimental like familial memory he has with his parents and that yeah that felt like a little nod to like yeah man life sucks but if you go to the movies and you can share an experience with people like Mm. that will bring you joy like that's literally the only time that he is connected to his family Mm -hmm. in the entire film yeah so it's obviously not on the level of like cinema paradiso but yeah it's a little bit of a nod to like Films are really important. Yeah. It's overall trajectory, though, is like I had a brief period where I had like a regular home and then my life went to shit. Right. Like, I I think like the movie opens with the opening credits with this like drive around Paris where um, you're like sightseeing outside the window of the car. You're like turning corners. You're like, oh, there's the Eiffel Tower out the window. And then the second time you get that drive is like he's at the going, end when he's in the paddy wagon being right. arrested. And they're like tears <laughs> okay. are going down his face. And yeah. it's at night and you can't, everything just looks grimy and wet. And like, he's just devastated. 
like the trajectory of the movie starts like at this place of like calm comfort and ends mm-hmm. well, miserably. Yeah. Ultimately, like the crime that gets him locked up is stealing a typewriter. That he was bringing back. That he brings back. <laughs> right. right. Like comparing that to what some kids get into nowadays, like that feels so, I don't know, so innocent. Yeah. Rascal stuff. Right. Yeah, he's, yeah, a, like, he's a rascal. Like saying, oh, yeah, my mom died. That's why I didn't come to school yesterday. That I'm so glad you said that because like, I'm like, what does like this like little boy's like friendship and all their little like shenanigans in the beginning remind me of? And it's like, oh, it's like a little rascal's episode. <laughs> also, I think the time period is interesting. Like it being like 1959 when you think of like, the counterculture revolution in Europe, but also in America, like started in the sixties and to think like, okay, I took him to be like maybe 12 in this movie. Mm -hmm. So by the time he got to be 18, 19, 20, that counterculture revolution would have been in like full force. Yeah. And I just wonder like how that character, like where he would have fit in. He definitely seems like the type that would have been a hippie. Or, well, we've you know, seen him play that character in the the mother yeah, of the whore, right? Where he's just kind of an insufferable hippie. <laughs> and a but it seems like that's where he would his actual character would go. Yeah, that's what's so brilliant about the like movement starting with him at this age because the movement is also this age. Right. Like it's also hasn't figured its shit out and like is still like this like scrappy underdog, yeah. and then it kind of like, grows into like um, you know international acclaim for being like the most you know, vibrant film scene in the world. It's really fun to look at film history with him as like this avatar for it. But like, <laughs> it's also funny how, I don't know. It's not like a Nick Cageian performer where like, he has this like idios- idiosyncrasies. You're like, that's a, that's a Jean-Pierre Layaud film. It's like, <laughs> he is just this like visual symbol that all these directors have used over the years. Yeah. beyond Truffaut, Even though he's just like, I don't want to say mediocre, but he's like, it's just like a sort of, blank cipher for yeah. people to like put stuff on. I, I find that very interesting, especially at the end of this movie, which is a shot I usually hate as an ending shot where he just stares directly at the camera. Mm-hmm. Like I remember in the Revenant that pissed me off Re- recently in, in lamb. I was like, fuck this movie when it ended <laughs> on that shot. But here it really works. Cause it feels like, I don't know. Truffaut's like staring at I, you through him. I did read a little bit about that where that isn't the shot he originally intended the actor like moved too quickly to look at the camera and it was, he basically just left it the way it was. But yeah. I think it, it works. Cause it mm-hmm. yeah, I, I watched that last shot a couple times and it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty powerful and you can project all sorts of meaning onto what is that expression in his face. I mean, the first time I saw it, it was kind of, like a sadness or a recognition, like, okay, I broke free. I made it all the way to the ocean. I'm here, but now where do I go from here? Yeah. It feels like a start of something. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like an actual ending and it, it it's kind of befitting that there's more stuff that happens to the right. character after it. Also kind of funny. Like he is a uh, rascal. I would say that Almodovar is the only like little boy in these like three European movies that's not a rascal. Like, <laughs> He's very his, prim. Yeah, he like sits in his little chair and does his homework very well. <laughs> he reads and his book and he tutors people. His yeah. like beautiful choir boy voice. Right, loves his mommy very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next movie though, another little boy rascal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Such a 
probably the best rascal of them all. The most right? adorable so rascal. Cute. The cutest. Yeah. Of- adorable this and innocent. Face. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so, Cinema Paradiso. Let's talk about it. Mm. So, it is from 1988, and it's um, a beautiful it- Italian drama. So, we've been to Spain, mm-hmm. we have been to France, and we are now in Italia. And this was written and um, directed by Giuseppe Tornatore. And the movie starts off, it's a, a flashback movie. Like it starts off where there's this film t- director named Salvatore. And he receives this call from his mom saying that, you know, hey, someone named Alfredo is dead. And at this point, you have no idea what's going on. And then it kind of flashes back to his childhood and this Sicilian village that he's from and he hasn't been to in like 30 something years. So as a kid, you know, he's like one of those like post like World War II kids they just always look like kind of dusty. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. He's got skinny little legs and huge shorts. <laughs> right. Just skinny and full of soot. And he's being raised by a single mother and his father died in the war. And he's also a little shit, but he's like so cute that you kind of were like, man, leave that kid alone. Let him do all that dumb crap that he's doing. Well, in his town, um, there is a, a movie house named Cinema Paradiso and he goes and he's like just falls in love with it and he befriends the guy who runs the projector alfredo this older man and they kind of develop this like really sweet bond and then salvatore who they they call him toto um i don't know if that's a reference like movies toto wizard of oz i have no idea it's never really explained in I'm just assuming. I think Salvatore, Tor, Toe, Toe, Salvatore. Toe, Toe. I don't know. Oh. Yeah, that could be it too. It could Salvatore be just like the, um, if your name's Salvatore, because how we call, like, if your name's like Benjamin, we call you Jimmy. He's too tiny to be a Sal, you know? Yeah. Sal is for when you're like 40 years old. And you have to be bald. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that comes later. <laughs> True. <laughs> so he, um, Hangs out with Alfredo a lot, goes to the movies and, you know, learns how to use the projector. And I think my one of my favorite parts about this movie is just this like Italian village full of weirdos. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's this priest who like loves the movies, but he's also like, um, what's the word? He's He's like censoring. Yeah, Yeah. He's like the censorship committee of the town. And he's like, man, whenever people start kissing and getting too lovey dovey, you got to take those scenes out. He rings his bell. Right. (laughs) So like all these are very, very G rated films. All the dirty kissy scenes are like taken out and they're put on the side. Well, um, Alfredo is projecting a film onto a nearby building. And, in that or at that time the projector like catches fire and and the whole cinema paradiso goes up in flames and alfredo is like really injured and loses his sight and one of the town weirdos wins the lottery and he <laughs> decides to rebuild cinema paradiso and because toto um, was pretty much trained up by Alfredo to run the projector. He starts running the projector. And then it kind of moves on to him going into like teenagehood. 
and I don't know, like I feel like when and he's still working the projector at the, at the movies and is just like super passionate about film. Like I think out of all the movies we watch, like this one is very like our main character is like very passionate about film and it is like so obvious. Mm-hmm. In his like teenage years in this movie, it's almost like his teenage years become movies in a movie. That is in a specific edit of the film. Because, like, there's a longer version of this movie that most people haven't seen. That's, like, the director's oh. cut. Um, and when the movie was purchased for American distribution by the Weinstein Company, Harvey Weinstein used to have this, like, um, habit of cutting the fuck out of, like, European films. Really? To make them more marketable in America. Usually, he would butcher the shit out of them. Like, the last big one I remember was he was arguing with Bong Joon-ho about Snowpiercer. It was going to edit out like 40 minutes of that movie. Oh, wow. What? And he has like a, he had, I mean, Turk. obviously he's obviously done way worse stuff than this. Yeah. And um, yeah, should sure. die in jail. Um, <laughs> but one of the things he was more notorious for before um, the sexual assault uh, allegations and conviction was that he would just mutilate foreign pictures. Oh. In this case, cutting Cinema Paradiso down from three hours to two hours by all accounts, anyone who's seen both cuts thinks that the two-hour version is way better. And what what he mostly cut out was this hour of the teenage years romance. Oh him. my god! So he basically shortened that romance section from like this like long drama into a montage, and does play like a like a sweeping romantic movie in this version. Yeah, but it was a lot more involved. Oh my god! I've yeah, was... heard the the oh. director's cut is like very somber, right? In a way that. This, this one is. This is more oh, of a crowd pleaser. I gotta get my paws in the director's cut. Cause yeah, I, I, hear, I hear it's worse. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that it was like purposefully done to be like, he loves movies so much that like, here's his teenage years as a romance movie. Here's his teenage years as like a military movie. I think it plays like wow. that perfectly well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's probably better for it, which I, I don't want to give Harvey Weinstein props no. for fixing this movie. Well, somebody but, else uh, probably helped make that decision. Yeah. So we'll give them props. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, um, anyways, romance does not work out for him. But that's not really... I don't know. I didn't give a shit about it. I don't think anyone yeah. cares about it. Nope. No. Like the, the main relationship in this movie is... The friendship. The friendship between mm-hmm. Alfredo and Salvatore. And there's this really pivotal moment in the movie where, you know, Salvatore is like old and blind. And I'm sorry, Alfredo is old and blind. And Salvatore's, you know, he's getting older and, you know, Alfredo kind of just sets him down as like, dude, like, go live your dreams. You're super interested in film. Like, go fulfill your director dreams and like, don't come back. <laughs> don't it was a very, try to like, find me. It was very Harry and the <laughs> Hendersons moment where it was like, get out of here. Right. No. Um, but it, it felt like these really straight, the way that the rules played was almost like a spell. Where it's like, don't come back for anything. And I'm like, shit. Like, if he comes back, does, like, all of it fall apart? It was just really, really spooky. Um, Sweet, but a little spooky, I found. The way Alfredo tells him. And he does that. He he goes away, becomes a successful filmmaker. And then, looping back to the beginning, um, that beginning phone call, Alfredo dies. And he does return to his Sicilian village to attend the funeral. I'm laughing because, like, the last 20 minutes of this movie is, like, these scenes of him returning. And it's just all these, like characters you've seen throughout the film just sort of solemnly nodding at each other like twice it's like, us they go to the funeral <laughs> and then they go to this like second funeral for the paradiso where they like watch it get destroyed and they're kind of just solemnly nodding mm-hmm. at each other like yeah i recognize you yeah 
Good to or have you it's, back. It's me. There you are. Hey, Sal. We know. Yeah. Hey, Soto. <laughs> it's almost like, yeah, there's like this, like, okay, nobody was pissed at him that he left. Like, they right. all, like, understood mm-hmm. it. And they're just like, yeah, the little, the funky little nods are like, yeah, we get it, dude. But yeah, I think, like, the, the big moment that, like, everybody loves and talks about is that, like, ending where um, Alfredo leaves Salvatore a reel and then he watches it and it's all of the dirty little cutout scenes that the priest didn't let them play <laughs> which are just like people kissing and, and it's beautiful yeah and the cinema paradiso th- like string theme is playing and it's like yeah. sweeping oh the score in this movie is like amazing phenomenal yeah and these just little tears welling up <laughs> it's oh my god that is such a beautiful scene it yeah it's like that scene just makes keep. me cry every time mm-hmm. and the other scene that makes me cry is when Salvatore's a little kid and he's working the projector for the first time at the new Paradiso. Uh-huh. And he looks over at the empty chair. He's like, oh, I mm-hmm. wish my friend was here to help me work this projector, just hang out with me, watch, mm-hmm. watch movies. And then his friend shows up. <laughs> like, uh, what's his name again? Alfredo, like, yeah. wanders through the door and, like, sits in the chair. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I don't know, that friendship really does, like, work yeah, emotionally. It's like, so oh, totally. beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it's very sweet. I like movies about friendship. I think if we ever did, like, a top 10 friendship theme movies oh, this yeah. would be this would be in there this would yeah. be in there um so yeah i really like this movie this is my second time seeing it thoroughly enjoyed it this time around as well it might be only my second time too i saw um it randomly because the the pretania had this like hundred year anniversary where they played this movie for free oh cool um they played it twice they played it inside for free and then outside on the wall oh cool uh, projection oh, on the wall, which weird. happens so in the film. Sweet. Oh, that sounds like yeah. a cursed thing to do, though. And that was uh, oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Don't burn. And that's when uh, Rene Brené was still alive, and he gave this Aww. intro where he was like, you know, when we played this in the '80s when it originally came out, um, it played for six solid weeks, and the college students were fucking pissed because it's a single screen theater and they were like, will you play anything else, please? <laughs> oh, I love his little, like, um, his little talks before movies yeah. would start. That was awesome. Uh, I miss hearing his respirator in the back of the cinema. Shit. So, real quick, before I open, open up the floor, I... For some reason, I got this movie confused with Santa Sangre. Oh wow, very <laughs> different. Very like different. Yeah, instead of a Paradiso, you know the limbs. <laughs> like what? I wonder if that's autobiographical to Hodorowski's life. He like <laughs> opened the circus. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just like you know how sometimes there are just these bizarre moments, and I'm like, these are no way related. Yeah. I have no idea how I got them mixed up, but I got them mixed up at this one point in my life. <laughs> um, so, yes. Um, but, yeah, definitely uh, want to get to know what you guys think of this movie. Cena Paradiso. So, I love this movie. It is like, so I love the 400 Blows and the, you know, the, the pretty straightforward style and cinema paradiso is just like manipulating me at every turn and i feel it and i do not care at all it like the little salvatore is just like the cutest little tiny italian boy like every t- small gesture of alfredo's is so sweet like he um like Salvatore goes to the theater and his he spends his money to go to the theater. His mom finds out and his mom is like so angry at him. And um, 
And Alfredo says, oh, well, no, he got in for free. And, you know, I have a little, I have his 50 lire right here. And he takes it. I don't know. It's just those like small moments of really building a bond and building chemistry between two people. And I mean, the final scene is just like, it was such a revelatory moment. The first time I watched this movie, it's like, just like pummeling you with all of this love and like different expressions of like love and lust and passion that has been shared between all these people. It's just these like quick moments. And it's like, you can really feel passion as this like separate entity that everybody taps into in these like small moments of life and like how precious those moments are and how like Alfredo has just been keeping these little segments of film that he's had to snip out of this movie and he like I just (laughs) pictured him like clipping all of them together he even puts like the end card on the end for like it's just such a like incredible gesture um I think I I love the first third of this movie and the last third of it. I I don't love the teenage year. Like it's very sweet too. I'm laughing because uh, I watched it with Cece, and as soon as um it jumped from uh the boy to the teenager, yeah. she was like, "I'm going to bed," <laughs> and she's like, "I don't think I've ever seen the second half of yeah. this movie. I think I just tap out after yeah. the uh, the young Salvatore <laughs> yeah. goes up." Yeah, it is a perfect like vignette by itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was interesting to uh, you kind of compared this to 400 blows because mm-hmm. they're so diametrically opposed yeah. mm-hmm. in like style. And, you know, if one is going for like realism and grittiness, this to me is like Hollywood schmaltz. Yeah. And the way, but in a good way, like mm-hmm. the way that, and th- that last scene especially is orchestrated so well. It's like the way that film can manipulate you to feel joy yeah and to feel love and it's you can watch it five times and every time you get to that last scene you feel it yeah and like you said like i've i know that feeling when you're watching a movie you see the the way it's playing you and you're just going along for the ride the continuum of those two movies right 400 blows is the start of the french new wave right Mm mm-hmm I'm not going to say it was the first art house movie. That's kind of ridiculous, but it's the start of what we think of as like European art cinema, mm-hmm. right? or it's at the start of it. And it creates this like film festival culture where like can becomes this like uh, annual ritual where like the art films of the year are like celebrated. And that continuum has, there's still really weird art films that come out of Europe every single year. And most of my favorite, like, erotic nightmare movies come out of that (laughs) arena but also it's created this industry where like artsy quote-unquote movies that are sold specifically as um oscar bait for like best foreign language Mm -hmm. films are generated through what french new wave and like 400 blows type movies built so like this movie the artist um colio which we talked about on here yeah uh life is beautiful yeah these are the kinds of movies that very cynical art house film snobs sort of turn their nose up at it's like oh this is like the you know treacle like schlock uh that is like come out of like actual real art yeah um and all those movies work for me they're all great (laughs) (laughs) very very interesting example of what you're talking about hannah mimi watch october sky (laughs) Oh my God. I've never seen that. 
He's, it's, it's Jake Gyllenhaal. It's he's like, yeah. you know, has to work in a coal <laughs> mine and all he wants to do is build rockets. And it's like <laughs> such a schmaltzy, like, yeah. just the American dream. You just got to believe. And if you want to build rockets hard enough, mm-hmm. you can get out of that coal mine. And, and the Russians are building rockets. So like now the Americans need to build it's rockets. It's not a perfect movie, but when we started, I was like, I'm going to freaking hate this thing. This <laughs> is exactly what I hate. Because I think a part of what you're saying, like, yeah. this isn't my kind of thing. But when a movie is made well, and it's that kind of movie, it's just like, it pulls you into it, and you can't help it. You've had more of a genuine interest in, like, melodrama lately, and just, like, totally, how, Yeah. And those movies, I mean, we're, we're calling them manipulative, but, I mean, they're pretty open about what they're doing. It's no right. more manipulative than, like, jump scares in a horror movie, or, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, intricate set design in a sci-fi film like they're they're just pretty open about like i'm gonna make you cry bring your kleenex right. uh, and especially since so much of this film is centered around the experience of going and seeing a movie and all of the different reactions that that elicits like i love all of the theater scenes where all of the townspeople are in the theater that, that's another interesting counterpoint to 400 blade did you notice they had the exact same shot of the kids watching Mm -hmm. yeah you're like watching people watch movies but the expression is totally different in the two films Mm -hmm. i think that's interesting as well i think that's where this movie is actually like smarter than the cynical vision of it as like a manipulative melodrama would put it like I don't know if this pans out in the longer cut, but I'm going to go with the shorter right. American yeah. cut I've seen several times. What I think is really brilliant about this movie as a symbol, and I think all these movies that we're talking about today are symbolic, is watching audiences of movies grow up along with this kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like you start with this little rascal um, just sort of sneaking into movies and like spending his like milk money for the house like right. at the theater instead of like actually buying groceries. And... The early screenings in the film are basically riots. Like, people are slinging shit. They're having sex in the back of the right. theater. They're, like, spitting on each other. <laughs> and just, like, it's a fucking madhouse. And then as the audience evolves with Salvatore, as he grows older and becomes a mature adult, mm-hmm. the audience also matures and the movies mature. Mm-hmm. And they become less, like, um, slapstick comedies and stuff. Serious. And become more serious. Yeah. And by the end... Or by the end of this, the version I've seen, they're all um, very wrapped and quiet and like actually paying attention to what's happening on the screen. Yeah. And if anyone talks over their dialogue, they're like, shh, shh, I don't want to miss yeah. this. So I think the movie is very symbolic about like growing up with the movies as an art form and how the yeah. movies matured over the, the decades as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's that's why true. I've heard it called like, you know, the greatest movie about movies. And I think, you know, I, would tend maybe to agree with that. I can't really think of other examples, but I think what it really gets at is that, you know, movies aren't just an escape. They're a way to like really connect us to our fellow human beings and grow up with people and experience all the ranges of human emotions. People get married in that theater. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That friendship is pretty core to the emotion of the piece too. Like, I'm sitting in a room with three people who I have a very close friendship with that I don't have with anybody else right now because we talk about movies every two weeks. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's a very genuine thing to like bond over the art form. And I think it works. I also think the movie has like actual images that are like very strong. Like 
the lion molding that oh, the projector yeah, yeah, yeah. shoots through is like very it's strong. So cool. mm-hmm. yeah. the, the ending montage and also the um the projection of the image on the outside yeah. screen when the the house is too packed yeah. and wants the people in the street to be able to view it as well. Yeah, and as it's moving along the wall too, it's so it's like this tiny little image, and then it just cross crosses the threshold and explodes onto the wall. It's so cool. And what's so great about that and about the um, ending montage is that they're total bullshit. Like, I don't know, like. Scientifically, right. how yeah. he got such a sharp image out of this reflection that he like <laughs> cast across the street in a well lit town square, yeah, for it to like look that nice. And the ending montage, like most of those clips, would have burned with the original Paradise, where he kept mm-hmm. the barrel of like things that the priest had Brandon, censored. I'm not listening. To exactly. <laughs> Who gives a shit? It's like movie magic. Those like the, logically, it doesn't matter how those things yeah. came to be. Like they work emotionally. And, I guess yeah. if it was in like a tin, that whole theater caught fire tin. because the movie was were flammable. It was nitrate film. Even if it's in a case, it was in a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> he just had a loose barrel of all the stuff the priest cut okay. out of it, and Salvatore was trying to like shove it in his pocket. You're right. And, the barrel would have burned everyone. Yeah. <laughs> That barrel probably is what burned the theater down. It like reached the it's barrel and exploded like a bomb. <laughs> but who cares? Like I don't I don't really need to know how it happened or yeah. the like science of it. Like it, it just is good emotional melodrama. I yeah. Don't know. It works for me. Yeah. It's I think it's just like that friendship, like you said, it's so core to the movie and it feels so strong and so real. Like I've seen movies melodrama movies where like that relationship doesn't feel authentic or it's like like plied for emotion i don't know like if we had if alfredo was on his deathbed and like you know croaking out his final whatever but it's just like all of the schmaltz and fantasy around cinema paradiso is supported by this very strong like beautiful loving structure and the final movie we have to talk about is about someone who needs more friends. <laughs> and doesn't have that oh emotional God. support. She has no Alfredo. <laughs> right. As I referenced earlier, this might be slight category fraud of party girl <laughs> proportions on my part. Because we, we're going to talk about autobiographical films. I've, I'm shifting it to autofiction. Uh, right. It's the Almodovar spirit. <laughs> right. Um, this is a film from this year. It's called I Blame Society. Um, it is one of my favorite films from 21, 21 I've seen so far, and I really wanted y'all to watch it. Yeah. So I oh, it's going to be on my list. I I actually forgot that it was 2021. So. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the filmmaker is Jillian Wallace Horvat. Uh, this is a movie where she wrote, directed, and stars in it as herself, uh, <laughs> Jillian Wallace Horvat. It actually has the m- most certifiable kernel of truth at the corner of it in that she is a struggling filmmaker. Right. Um, She was complimented by a friend a few years ago saying you would make a great murderer. All of the qualities you have as a filmmaker and like the fucked up movies you make and like the planning that goes into making your movies. I think you would be a great serial killer based (laughs) on those qualities. Uh, She was fascinated by that compliment and she made a short film documentary interviewing her friends and family about that compliment and whether or not they think that she would be good at killing people and getting away with it. In the movie, I Blame Society, there are scenes of her looking back at that footage. Um, And that is real footage of her interviewing her family Mm -hmm. and friends. 
the fictional part is that she um, <laughs> takes up that challenge and starts killing people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> In the film, um, she is a struggling filmmaker who keeps going to these board meetings with like Duplass brother type like film bros mm-hmm. yeah. who are like, we really want like a strong female voice to come in and make these like strong female characters in our movies and like really into like diversity and like all these changes that have come after the Me Too movement. But they don't mean anything they're saying. What they want her to do is put her director's credit on their projects so they can keep making the movies they're going to make anyway. But now there's a female director attached. Meanwhile, she has all these like actually exciting, fresh ideas that no one wants to fund because all of her characters are actually strong female characters, right. meaning that they're unlikable, troublesome, like morally questionable psychopaths, which are like the <laughs> roles that really men get to play in movies. Right. Um, and she takes this into her own hands by filming her own documentary found footage <laughs> horror film that we're watching. Where she starts killing people, uh, starts with people that she finds annoying, and then <laughs> spreads out to just basically anyone. Like, um, she will stage suicides and like fake their deaths by poisoning them, and then writing um, suicide notes in their voice, uh, basically satirizing uh, people that she finds annoying, and then eventually like killing innocent homeless people just to throw the cops yeah, off the trail just to diversify <laughs> her portfolio and also to make her character in the movie like this heightened version of herself unlikable yeah and she is drawn in real life to unlikable women and she wants to see those women in movies and mi- women misbehaving and fucking up mm-hmm. and she's like i'm going to make myself into that <laughs> uh and like by killing and fucking homeless people right. um, for this like art project. Uh, she challenges our affection for her. Mm-hmm. And she's very aware of everything she's doing. Um, in the movie, she uses these like girl boss slogans. Like she'll be like, <laughs> I'm living my best life. Yes. Or like lean in baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> or um, like when she kills the homeless person, she realizes that changes the like tone of the film. So she's like, what we need is a makeover montage. And like, she really like redoes her face and hair to like, really like change up the tone of the picture. So fucked up and great. And it eventually spirals to her killing the Duplass brothers um, stand in. I don't know if that was an, the actual satirical target, but it felt like it, it worked was. for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, the whole time she's really pointing to the found footage quality where like you watch her direct the film. Um, there's a lot of GoPros strapped directly to her head. And, um, there's these like dolly shots where she'll zoom in on herself by cranking yes. this wheelchair like closer and closer. So she's like, the whole movie is about DIY filmmaking and about how she's not given enough chances in the Hollywood system to make her art. So I'm going to go out on a limb and make it on my own terms um, and make the most fucked up thing that no one else wants to pay to watch. Um, yeah. Personally, I felt like I was being pandered to. Like, this is the exact kind of <laughs> shit I love to see in movies. And I had a blast. Uh, what did y'all think of this? Uh, I thought it was hilarious. Yes. And so good. And I I like this. I mean, maybe it is not as autobiographical as the other three. But, but I really like that the other three movies are like, it's like about the dream of being a director. Like you come from troubled circumstances and through like the power of your own passion and skill, you're able to become a successful director, basically. I mean, in 400 Blows, it doesn't happen then, but it's going to happen eventually. And in this case, it's like, this is how 
it actually feels to try to make movies in especially like in the United States in the modern world for women like who who can't just kind of make generic movies like and the barriers are so kind of banal it's just these like really like unfortunate conversations with powerful men like the she has a Skype call with this guy and he like has his ear up to the phone yes. he's like yeah you know i finally read your script and it, oh, it was just it was really political you know israel's a really political topic and like yeah it was also political when i sold you the idea right of it was a movie the same, about israel yeah it was like the same thing that, that it was and yeah she's like but like uh, your ear can you just like get your ear <laughs> yeah do you want to rearrange a little bit <laughs> yeah so it's like in the other three movies there are these like deep like kind of painful obstacles that these men overcome. And in this, it's just like, I just can't get my foot in the door at all. And I'm going to go completely bananas and just make the thing that I fucking want. Um, And then it's like, when she finally presents it to the brothers, they're like, I just like, I didn't really believe it. Yeah. (laughs) She was unlikable too. Right. (laughs) I, I thought that the, the, the jokes about female directors were pretty i mean they were pretty easy jokes like there's a news story about these murderers and the newscasters keep saying like only a man with, with <laughs> lots of criminal back like a criminal background could have done this and she's like god damn it like i, I can't get credit <laughs> like in every like no matter what she does she is just undermined constantly and it's so frustrating yeah, I'm thinking of like my other favorite movie from this year I've seen so far was Titan. Mm-hmm. And I'm like wondering what like oh, Julia yeah. Ducarneau trying to make movies in Hollywood would be like. Oh, yeah. And I imagine it'd be pretty similar to this. Like, yeah. Just can't get anything off the ground. Yeah. Because it's the same kind of like deeply unpleasant characters making like, <laughs> uh, fucked up decisions. Yeah. I also thought, she, I mean, she was she was pretty horrible, um, but it was, it was totally entertaining to like that de- the death scene in the mountains when like she wants to, she basically wants to kill her friend's girlfriend. Yeah. Because <laughs> she thinks he, um, she's like the devil. Um, and she finally reconnects with this friend. They go on a hike together and she like gives him a poppy seed or no, a sesame seed bagel sandwich. And she thinks that he doesn't like sesame seeds. So she like brushes them off, but he's allergic to sesame seeds and then and she's like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do with the with the EpiPen. And then she's like trying to get him to like say that he will not marry this girlfriend. And she's like negotiating. Right. With she's like, EpiPen. OK, I really want to step. And it was like she's like so kind of like fakely innocent and like and but just like doing horrific, horrible things, kind of just being a selfish um, person. That's another kernel of truth too. Is that guy actually is her best friend mm-hmm. oh, um, wow. and co-wrote the movie, and his name oh, is really? also Chase in real life too. Uh, okay, so I don't I don't know how much of their real dynamic with her hating right. his girlfriend is. Yeah, but, I was wondering. Uh, I was like, hmm, there's I, something going on great there. Scene. Yeah. That's yeah. whenever like she truly like turns, and I'm like, oh my god, like she's a like legit psychopath. It's fabulous. Yeah, because she's like you said, like she pulls you in. Where I don't know, it's like you're rooting for her and everyone she kills, no matter how wrong it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you just want her to succeed and, and find her happiness. And it's kind of like, wow, you found something you really enjoy. 
Yeah. And I'm worried about how long it might take to see another movie from her after this. Like, she'll have to re- like legit kill people or something. Right. Like, right. she'll have to really do that. It would that mo- this movie was just so like brilliant. Like, I can't even like find something comparable to it that I've seen. It's such like a bizarre idea. Like, this is a crazy idea. To, I've like, heard put it compared to movie. Man Bites Dog, but I've never, never seen that. Seen that. Yeah. Okay. So maybe it's something we should circle back to. Maybe so. But I don't know, for something that was shot in 12 days, like it's pretty singular and like yeah. special. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the um uh the goriness of it in some parts, especially like the organ harvesting. Oh, that Jeez. was wild. That was crazy. That got very you know, very real. <laughs> I hope it wasn't real. It escalates, I think, in the same way that Spree does from like last year, uh-huh. where he like starts by poisoning people and it's kind of bloodless, mm-hmm. and then by the end of the movie, it's like it's actually gets like, really nasty. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's in that direction. It gets explosive. Yeah. What do you think, James? I I didn't like it as much as y'all did. <laughs> <laughs> I could sense that from across the room. I I felt like it took a while to get going for me to like really get into what it was doing. I think it's that scene with the where she causes an allergic reaction, her best friend. And then from that point on, which is like the last half hour of the movie, it's balls to the wall. Crazy. The first like 45 minutes, I was just kind of scratching my head, not finding it particularly funny or engaging. And then it did start to hook me about halfway through. But what I always struggle with is these movies where this character is so horrible. You gotta love him. I don't really like it, whether it's a man or a woman. It doesn't matter to me. Like, I don't find that like particularly subversive. I found her instantly kismet. Like, I just I felt like I was on her wavelength instantly. Like everything that she finds funny was just I don't know. I felt like locked on to like her entire personality. Mm-hmm. The first scene in the film. <laughs> so, I mean. I don't know. Different, different strokes. Different man. strokes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it comedy's kind of like that. Like, if you're not, if you're not like vibing with the the sense of humor, it's not really going to come around. Although the movie does have its own like horror payoffs later on. No, and I thought it had in, like really interesting things to say about female directors in a male space. But um, ultimately, I thought it was pretty uneven, and it has a really good last act. And I don't know. I did not enjoy it i just i wasn't like head over heels for it i mean like i said shot in 12 days someone like a very limited budget um and honestly taking like really big pot shots at like people way above her like rank (laughs) good for her in hollywood yeah um so it's a very scrappy movie and it definitely is uneven she has a very particular cynicism and a very particular taste in misbehavior that i uh was just in love with i don't know i i I was instantly just like on her wavelength like i said and even when she's like trying to shake you off by doing like reprehensible things in the back half i was like okay i see why she's doing this and i see like how she's like straying from her real life persona to sort of mold herself into these fictional characters that she um really appreciates the way I discovered this movie was she was on a episode of Switchblade Sisters um, mm. podcast when that was still a thing earlier this year. It's since been canceled. Oh, but, I didn't know that. Uh, it's such a bummer. Shit. But uh, she was being t- interviewed um, relating this movie, I Blame Society, to Nicole Kidman's role in To Die For. Mm-hmm. Oh, she yeah. She was basically saying that was the same type of character, like this like 
thirst for fame, mm-hmm. does fucked up shit to get it, but you still are like kind of in awe of her the whole movie. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know. I think that's like totally apt. Mm-hmm. I think she nailed it. Yeah. But To Die For is so much better. I love They're both great. Movie. Yeah. I like To Die For a lot. Yeah. Love it, actually. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, To Die For is working with like an actual like Hollywood budget. And it's like, it's got more of a quality control, like professional filmmaking thing. This is like a 12 day shooting schedule and like someone basically filming most of the footage herself. <laughs> so I guess maybe no, I'm giving that, it a little yeah, leniency that's in quality. Admirable. Yeah. yeah. Well, the least sentimental of the four <laughs> movies we're talking, we talked about today, maybe, or at least on the same yeah. level as 400 blows. Definitely like the angriest, like most yes. frustrated. She throws a lot of punches. Yeah. 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 And it kind of, I know it's like the most recent movie, so obviously the most like modern style, but it's so different in style than like the other three. Yeah. It's insane. Found footage horror style. Oh, so I cool. don't even know if I really mentioned that at first because I was just so excited about what she's saying with the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it does have that like um handheld Blair Witch Project. Like a selfie in motion uh, kind of framing. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's why you like it so much too, because like that's a lot of like the techno horror. That you're into. There's kind uh, of a little spin of that. Very much so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even, like, not even just the GoPro footage, but, like, the sociopathic behavior of <laughs> recording every interaction with that GoPro right. strapped <sighs> to her head. So, like, even when she's going out for, like, coffee with her boyfriend right. and she's, she's sort like- of slowly breaking up with... She's wearing this like cute sundress with like her new haircut, <laughs> but she also has this GoPro right. strapped to her head. She has like, like two phones set up yeah. to record from different angles. Yeah. yeah. I also, this is like a very small note, but I love how she's like, okay, I got to work myself up. So she's committing these like very benign crimes and she's totally disappointed with like the, like there's no rush for her. Like she steals some cough syrup from a Walgreens or something and she's like, oh, well, that was nothing. And then she breaks into this chick's house that she eventually murders. And she's like rifling through her cabinets. She's like, I thought there would be like prettier stuff in here. But <laughs> yeah. It's just a bunch of vitamins. <laughs> and then she, it, it's like, she is so matter of fact about everything that she's doing, including like the murder. Like she has sex with a homeless guy. And she's like, oh man, that was like really great, which is going to make this next part even harder. And then and, kills him anyway. Yeah, and he dies. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was a very funny movie. Yeah, she's very funny. It reminds me of Spree a lot. I think if you enjoyed Spree, this is like yeah. a different flavor of mm-hmm. that with a lot more cynical Hollywood stuff. Yeah. Also very funny to make a Hollywood satire as your first directorial movie. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like it's usually something you make after you're like angry after working in the industry for like right. decades. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what episode is next because I'm recording a lot of things out of order right now. So I don't uh-huh. know what to billboard here. Uh, go to swampflix.com. I'm sure we're doing something. Yeah. This week. Yes. <laughs> Check it out. Whatever it is. And I also promise to um, gush about I Blame Society again when we do our best of the year stuff <laughs> in a couple episodes. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and we'll talk to you all next week. Right. Not sure about what, but we will. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.